All right. Good morning. That was really sad. Good morning. Much better, much better. Let me be another face to welcome you here to Liberty Church. Um, my name is Casey Horvath. I'm a covenant member of Liberty. I am a graduate of Liberty University, a student of Heidelberg Theological Seminary, and I am training for the pastor, and it is my joy and honor to preach the very word of God to you this morning. If this is your first time here, or if you haven't been here in a while, right now we are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Genesis, in which we have been focusing on the life of Abraham, and you might have picked up on that this morning already. Now, whether or not you've grown up in the church, or if you have been a Christian for a long time or a short time, or if this is your first Sunday in a church, there is no doubt that at some point in your life, you have heard of the ancient patriarch Abraham. And that's because Abraham is not a fictional character, but rather a real and significant historical figure who lived in the ancient Middle East. Over the past nine weeks, we have been considering how God, the creator of the universe, chose to make binding promises with Abraham, which the Bible calls covenants, as a means to redeem a people for himself and to reveal himself. Now, we will unpack those two things, God's redemption and his revelation in the moments to come, but I say that to bring you up to speed. This is what we have been considering for some time now. The creator of the universe, God, chose to redeem people and reveal things about himself by making covenant with this man, Abraham. Probably, like many of you, I have enjoyed some needed family vacation, and I haven't been here for every sermon that has been preached in this series. So by way of introduction to my exposition this morning, I'm going to set the stage for the passage that we will look at together by briefly summarizing its historical and biblical context. And my goal and my hope in providing you with this summation is that if, like me, you haven't been here every week, by providing you with the historical context, you will have a fuller, richer appreciation and understanding of today's passage that will then give you greater insight and greater application in your life and ultimately greater faith in the person and promises of God. So, here we go. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are commonly referred to as the Pentateuch. They are five-volume set, with Genesis being the first of the five books. All five of these books were written by the historical prophet and leader of Israel, Moses. This means that Genesis, the particular book that contains the record of Abraham's life, the book that we've been considering for nine weeks, was not written for the generation of people that lived at Abraham's time. It wasn't written for Abraham. It wasn't written for his contemporaries. And I say that because Moses lived 500 years plus after Abraham and his writing. This, of course, begs the question, whom then is Moses writing the book of Genesis for? Well, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we find Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, being held captive as slaves in ancient Egypt. And this is what we read in Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. At this point in history, at Exodus chapter 2, the Israelites had spent 400 years in slavery. Over that course of time, they had little to no interaction with God. And here, Exodus 2 captures them simply just crying out for deliverance from their bondage. And it is God who hears. God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then God acts. And God acts in a miraculous way. God delivers the descendants of Abraham with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God destroys Pharaoh and frees the people from their slavery. And all of this is predicated, Exodus 2 tells us, on a promise that God made with Abraham. Now, imagine growing up as a slave in a culture, in a context, where all you knew was slavery. You'd be limited to your education resources, provisions. You you wouldn't really have a whole lot to know about the the known world at the moment. You'd be limited in, in the resources you had. Imagine that your parents were slaves, your grandparents were slaves, and your great-grandparents were slaves. Imagine now you have no knowledge of who God is, and then all of a sudden, one day, God shows up, destroys the most powerful king in the known world, and sets you free, and promises to give you a country of your own based upon a promise he made with one of your ancestors you never knew, who lived hundreds of years before you were ever born. You'd probably want some backstory into who God is, who Abraham was, and what was this covenant. So, consequently, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes the book of Genesis so that Abraham's descendants, who were just redeemed from Egypt, might behold their God and fully know him as he is revealed. Some of you women who are here this morning participated in a Bible study this past fall uh, one uh, by Jen Wilkin, and you may remember her quote. She says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Essentially, that is the purpose for why Moses writes the book of Genesis and documents the life of Abraham. He wants his audience to behold their God. He wants his audience to know who God is and what he has done throughout history so that they might love God and glorify God. Just as a side note here for you this morning, God has chosen to reveal himself through the means of holy writ, through sacred inscription, for the sole purpose that you might know him. At no point in your life as a Christian should you ever think, the Bible is a mystery. I'll never understand it. Or there are things in the Bible that I'll never understand. Those statements are lies from Satan himself, the father of lies. The whole idea of Scripture is God's self-revelation, his self-revealing, his self-disclosure. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is not hiding himself in the pages of Scripture. He is doing the complete opposite. He is revealing himself. Sure, there are things that God has chosen not to reveal about himself, and those things will remain a mystery. 
but everything about God given to us in the Bible is for your knowledge so that you might behold God, know God, and love God. All right, I'll close that parenthetical thought and back to our sermon. Moses writes Genesis. He records the life of Abraham so that his original audience would know who God is and what he has done. Now, lay a hold of this this morning. At the time Moses gave the book of Genesis to his original audience, they were sojourners in the wilderness who had recently been set free from bondage and were seeking a promised land from God. Did you know that if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, the Bible depicts you as a spiritual sojourner who has been set free, not from a physical slave master, but from the bondage of sin and its consequences of death and hell. And at this very moment, you are awaiting entrance into the eternal promise kingdom of God. There is much in the narrative of Genesis for you. So to answer the question directly, who did Moses write the book of Genesis for? Moses' original audience were the first and second generation of Abraham's descendants that had been delivered from Egypt. And to reiterate, his purpose for writing was so that the people would behold their God and fully know him as he has revealed himself. So the Holy Spirit, who's the author of all scripture supernaturally, has Moses begin his writing with the creation account in which God created the universe and everything in it out of nothing in six literal days by the power of his spoken word, thus revealing God to be the sovereign, omnipotent creator and sustainer of all things. As the gospel of John accurately states, all things were created by him and nothing has existed except for that which God has chosen to create. Following the account of creation, Moses' audience encounters God's covenant with Adam, what theologians often refer to as the covenant of works or the covenant of life. In this covenant, God reveals his holiness and his righteous indignation towards sin. He also reveals the penal retribution for sin by promising life to Adam if he obeys and death if he disobeys. As you may already know, Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan and disobeyed God's prohibition to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin and death entered the world, bringing about devastating consequences. The sin that has caused murder and genocide entered the world in Adam's disobedience. The sin that brought about rape, homosexuality, pedophilia, pornography entered the world in this very moment. The sin that has wrecked your marriage, has destroyed friendships, came into the world at this moment. The sin that has caused you and I great shame and guilt and pain and anguish entered the world in this moment. And immediately following the fall of humanity, the entrance of sin and death into the world, Moses records for his audience an act of God's grace the promise of God which dominates all of redemptive history. Speaking to the serpent who is Satan, with Adam and Eve both in attendance, God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here in this promise, which is referred to as the proto-evangelium, the first reference to the gospel, 
the reader is told of an offspring who will be a deliverer that will crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself. And the subject of this offspring, this seed, dominates the rest of Moses' writing in Genesis. In fact, the offspring that will produce a seed and bring forth a savior will conquer Satan, death, and sin. That dominates the whole of redemptive history recorded for us in the Bible. This is why the biblical authors take painstakingly record with so many genealogies, and they do it with absolute precision and detail. They are concerned with properly identifying the Savior that is to come. So immediately following this promise of a Savior in most dramatic form, sin begins to take effect in the world, and it appears as though God's promise to bring forth a Savior is at stake. Cain kills his brother Abel, and the promise seems to be in jeopardy. But God, being the sovereign creator of the universe, cannot have his plans or his promises thwarted, and thus begins a righteous line of godly people from Adam and Eve's son, Seth. Soon after this godly line of people is established, the effects of sin begin to compound, and Satan seems to thrive, and the world becomes so immoral that Moses records a description of that time period this way. He says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts in his heart was only evil continually. In the midst of such great wickedness, Moses tells his audience that God chose to destroy all the inhabitants of the world, including animals, by bringing about a worldwide flood. And it seems like this promise of a savior is surely going to fail. But the reader quickly learns that God's plan all along was to save this one man named Noah and his family by instructing them to build an ark. And in another act of grace, God decides to spare Noah and his family and two of every living creature. Following the event of the worldwide flood in which God exercises his wrath against wickedness, God makes a covenant with Noah and every other human that will ever live along with the earth to never flood the earth again. And in this covenant, God promises to preserve the world and thus preserve the future that is to unfold. God decides to preserve the world so that a savior might come into the world and defeat sin death, and Satan. Think of the Noahic covenant this way. In eternity past, God acted as a cosmic playwright, and he chose to write a script according to his own free will. We'll call that script God's eternal decree. And the main plot of his script is to show or reveal his glory to creatures. Think of God's promise to never destroy the earth with water as God's promise to not destroy the stage on which his cosmic drama will unfold, the place where this Savior will come from the seed. Following the preservation of the earth by God and its repopulation with people, Moses keys his audience in on this one man named Abram. This is where our sermon series gets its start. In Genesis 12, we read of God's call to Abram, and in the call of Abram, the narrative returns its focus to the offspring that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. Here, God promises Abram posterity, children, and offspring. In fact, this offspring will be a great nation, and they will have a great land, and they will experience a great salvation. And through and from Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
And thousands of years after Abraham is dead and buried, the apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, tells us that we should read that promise this way. Through and from Abraham's seed, the Savior that was promised in Genesis 3 will come and he will defeat sin, death, and Satan. And almost immediately after being told that the Savior of the world will come through his lineage, it appears as though Abram is going to screw that all up by taking Sarai, his wife, to Egypt to escape a famine. If you were here for that sermon, you will remember that Abram feared that the Egyptians would see how beautiful Sarai was and then kill him so that they could have her for themselves. So he tells his wife to just introduce herself as his sister. This way they won't kill him. And if you recall, he didn't think that through too well because Pharaoh meets Sarai and Abram and says, oh, hey, this is your sister. Great, I'll take her as my wife. And again, it appears as though the promise of a savior that we know at this point in the narrative who will come from Abraham is in jeopardy. It looks like Abraham is going to get himself killed by the Pharaoh or he is going to end up without a wife in his old age and he will have no one to procreate with. In fact, the narrative in Genesis of Abraham's life is like that TV show that was popular a few years ago when I was in college called 1,000 Ways to Die. I don't know if you ever watched that, but it, it captured a 1,000 different ways people had supposedly died. The narrative of Abraham's life is like a 1,000 ways Abraham can screw up the proto-evangelium, the promise in Genesis 3 of a Savior who will come. In fact, probably more accurate is this statement that the narrative is a 1,000 ways Satan tries to thwart the plan of God, and never succeeds. If you follow the life of Abraham with any sort of attention or detail, you will see his life and the life of this seed promised in Genesis 3 is always in jeopardy. But God being the sovereign, omnipotent creator, as he has revealed himself to be, will not have his promises or his plans thwarted by Satan or mere men. God will bring, assuredly bring about a savior from the line of Abraham. And so God makes covenant with Abraham again in the covenant of circumcision and promises in greater detail the birth of a son named Isaac. And God specifically says to Abraham in Genesis 17, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Do you feel like I hit you with a fire hose? <laughs> that was a lot. But this brings us to our text. If you will go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 21. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can use the black Bible either behind you or around you or in front of you. And on that, in that Bible, we'll be on page 15. And we'll be reading Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. 
Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Bow your head with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, your very word, the inscripted text that you have chosen to reveal yourself from, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal your character and your nature to us in these moments. I ask God that we would see you, we would behold you, and we would love you as you have revealed yourself. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you will, draw your attention to verse 1 and 2 with me. We read, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. For the original audience who had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, who were sojourners in the wilderness, awaiting a promised land, these two verses would have revealed so much of the very nature and character of God. These verses would have built a firm foundation for those saints to build their faith upon. In these verses, we see God reveal himself as the God of grace. Abraham never earned the right of a son. He never earned a lineage. He never earned any blessings from God. It was all given to him as un merited favor from God. The text tells us that the Lord visited as he had said, and the Lord did as he had promised. Abraham didn't earn anything. The birth of Isaac is actually a climactic expression of God's grace. The original audience would have seen the same thing to be true about their redemption from Egypt. They never earned their redemption. They never earned their freedom. They never earned their right to be the descendants of Abraham. Their salvation was predicated on God's unmerited favor. So God reveals himself in this verse, in these verses, as the God of grace. We also see God reveal himself as faithful. God brought about the promised son Isaac based upon his character of doing what he says he will do. Even in the moments of faithlessness on the part of Abraham, as we have tracked Abraham's life up into this point, we have seen moments of faithlessness. There's been a lack of faith at points. And even in those moments, God remained faithful. Faithful to his promise, Even during what seemed to be this extended period of time, from the promise of Isaac to the fulfillment of that, God still remains faithful. And the original audience would have known this to be true personally. By reading Genesis, they would understand that they were slaved, or excuse me, saved from slavery in Egypt because of God's faithfulness, a covenant that they were most likely not even aware of at the time of their salvation. Not only was God faithful to bring about the birth of Isaac, but he was faithful to deliver Isaac's descendants just as he had promised. In these verses, we see God reveal himself as mighty. 
We see him reveal himself full of grace. We see him reveal himself as faithful. And we see God reveal himself as mighty. God brought about the birth of Isaac in the face of apparent adversity and impossibility to demonstrate his divine power. Despite all the occasions where it looked like Satan would mess up God's plan of bringing about an offspring from Abraham, God's plan was never thwarted. It seemed virtually impossible to have a son. Sarah and Abraham were in their old age, and Sarah was barren. And the original audience would have known this to be true of God as well, based upon their miraculous exodus from Egypt. God truly delivered his people with signs and wonders through plagues and the destruction of the most powerful known leader in the day. In Genesis chapter 21, God reveals his grace, faithfulness, and might to his people through the birth of Isaac so that they might know him and love him. Furthermore, these verses would have built a firm foundation for these saints to build their faith upon as they sojourned in the wilderness, awaiting their promised land. Not only does the record of Isaac's birth reveal God's grace, his faithfulness, and his mighty works of the past, but it also points to God's unchanging and constant character and work that will unfold in the future. The birth of Isaac points to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the promised seed in Genesis chapter 3. For the original audience, Isaac was a dim shadow that pointed to the fulfillment of a Savior that would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would come to defeat sin, death, and Satan. But being on this side of the cross... Isaac is in the dim light of the Savior. We know that all of God's promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But notice how the birth of Jesus is foreshadowed in the birth of Isaac. In verse 1, we read that the Lord visited Sarah. In Luke chapter 1, Mary is visited by the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, we read that Sarah conceived and bore Isaac at the time which God had spoken. In Galatians 4, we read, Jesus was born when the fullness of time had come. In verse 2, we read that Isaac was born to parents in their old age, physically incapable of having children. In Luke chapter 1, we read that Jesus is miraculously born to a virgin, physically incapable of having children. Most importantly, we see Isaac as a fulfillment of the promise that a Savior will come from the lineage of Abraham. Following the, the birth of Jesus, we see that he is the ultimate fulfillment of a Savior who would come through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As you and I who have been saved from sin, death, and Satan, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and are now sojourners in this world awaiting the promised eternal kingdom, these verses in Genesis 21 reveal to you and I God's grace, his faithfulness, and might. But furthermore, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, is a firm foundation for you and I to build our faith upon. 
as you and I sojourn in this life, awaiting our heavenly dwelling, and as we try to navigate the messiness of life, you and I have the assurance of God's grace. Just as Abraham did not earn his favor with God, the same is true for you and me. We are not saved from God's wrath and delivered from the power of sin and death based upon anything we have done. We never earn our salvation. The salvation of God was given to us as an act of unmerited favor. Brother and sister, you who are acutely aware of your sinfulness, you who your sexual immorality, you see it as a sin against God, and you are overcome by the guilt and the shame of your sin, repent of your sin this morning and build a firm foundation on the righteousness of Jesus. Turn to the God of grace in faith this morning. Lay hold of the assurance of God's grace. As you and I make war against our flesh and we battle in our sanctification, and we find ourselves often sitting in the muck of our sin, we have the assurance of God's faithfulness. Just as God remained faithful to his promises that he made with Abraham, so God is faithful to save us and keep us, to never lose us, even in spite of ourselves. Brother and sister, you who feel the weight of your unfaithfulness, you know that your heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God that loves you. Build a firm foundation on the faithfulness of Jesus this morning. God has said to you, dear saints, I who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And he also says, I am able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Like Abraham, despite the muck and mire you find yourself in this morning, you are unable to screw up or thwart God's plan of salvation for you. Turn to the faithful God in faith this morning. As we feel weary in our sojourn, as you and I become tired from the trying elements of the wilderness, we have the assurance of God's might. Just as Isaac was born to Sarah and Abraham in the face of impossibility, you and I were spiritually born in the face of impossibility. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being mighty, and rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead, physically impossible of rebirth, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you and I have been saved, and this is not a work of our own doing. This is the mighty work of God in the face of impossibility. Fathers and mothers, and I mean that spiritually, you who are constantly, with tears, praying for the spiritual birth of your children, 
It looks like there is no way that your son or daughter will come to faith. It feels like the time for spiritual birth has passed. Like Abraham and Sarah, it feels barren. It seems physically impossible. Build your faith on the firm foundation of Jesus, who is mighty to save. Keep praying to the mighty God who is able to change the leopard spots. The mighty God who is able to deliver his children from the bondage of sin and death with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, just like he did in keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Saints, behold the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of grace, he is the God of faithfulness, and he is the God of might. This morning, behold him for who he is. Church, put your faith in the God of grace who is faithful in all of his promises and mighty to save you this very morning. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself as full of grace, faithful to your promises, and mighty to save. God, this morning I pray that we, your people, would cling to your nature and your character. We would cling to the person that you are. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work faith in us, that we would live in light of the fact that there is grace, faithfulness, and might to behold in you. Amen.